we're going to look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Um, you can see it up here. You can follow along in your phones or in your um, Bibles. Um, so I'll read it for us. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having, putting, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So um, I grew up in a house uh, where we had uh, four kids and um, two adults, <laughs> mom, mom and dad. So there were six of us. And uh, one of the things that we like to do the best, especially amongst the kids, is um, we would hide behind a door, <laughs> wait for somebody to come by, and as soon as they came by, I would say, someone would go, boo, and then try to scare them. And it worked because you would not expect somebody to be hiding around the corner. And the best I ever did at this was one time we were just eating dinner and my sister was staring right at me and I booed her and I scared her because <laughs> she was like, who's, what kind of idiot is going to boo someone at the dinner table? And I was like, this idiot will do it. And so Paul is writing about something here that you don't even know when it's supposed to happen. And because you don't know it, it can catch some people off guard and make you a little bit scared but there's another reaction to it where once this thing happens, people are not scared by it, but they're actually fulfilled by it. So we're going through a series on the book of Acts, and the last place we left off is Acts chapter 17, where Paul is on his second missionary journey. And while he's there, um, we are learning about Luke, the author, who is not just telling us um, the ins and outs of everything, but he's writing this grand story. We're reading a narrative. So one of the main characters there is Paul, and in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Thessalonica, and Luke tells us he's only there for three weeks before he is forced to leave because of persecution. And because of this persecution, Paul is deathly curious about what is going on with this church that he only got to spend a limited number of time with. So he sends Timothy. Timothy comes back and reports, hey, the church is doing well, but they have all of these questions. And out of necessity, Paul writes a letter to answer their questions, and that is 1 Thessalonians. And so what we have here is kind of a behind-the-scenes look at the grand narrative that Luke is telling. It's like um, watching the Bulls play versus watching the last dance. You can see the game on the screen, but the last dance shows you the behind-the-scenes pictures of how everyone was afraid, what they were concerned about, what was motivating them. You see the same thing with the Beatles documentary, Get Back. And one thing that we see here is we learn about the fears that the early Christians had and we learn about Paul's core theology. What was the basic thing that he believed? And what we're going to find this morning is that something that is potentially scary in the future should not be a source of fear for those who have hope, but it should be a source of fulfillment. So with that, let me pray for us, and then we'll look more carefully at what Paul has to say.
Dear God, we just thank you so much for giving us time to quiet our hearts and to be in your spirit, to be in your presence. And as we're in this place, we know that your spirit wants to speak to us, it wants to shape us, it wants to encourage us, but it's so hard to fix our eyes on you because there's so many different things going on. What we pray is the same prayer that David had in Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so I pray that as we look upon you today, that you would purify our hearts and help us to fix our eyes on the things that are most important. We thank you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So we're getting started here, and we see that Paul has basically two core messages, and the first one comes in verse 10. And in verse 10 it says, uh, Through our Lord Jesus Christ, he died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And this is a message of great promise, and a lot of us grew up with it, but can you imagine hearing it for the first time? Earlier in the book, uh, Paul tells us that the Thessalonians had just turned from idol worship to worshiping Christ. And when you hear a message like this, Jesus died for you and he rose again for the dead, it leaves all these kind of questions unanswered. Okay, if he died to forgive us, why do we keep on sinning? All right, if he's alive again, where is he? How come I can't see him? And if he gives us resurrection life, how come the people next to me, the people in this church, keep dying? I don't understand how this message actually works because there's a problem going on here. We feel like the reality of it is not here. And so Paul responds by telling us something about what he believes about how history works. And the thing that he believes is that Jesus' death and resurrection sets off a new era in human history. I'm a historian, and so I love looking at moments where the world seemed to change. In the 18th century, the world changed in profound ways. The French Revolution broke aristocratic power, broke monarchical power, and started putting the idea of human rights on the map. You also have the Industrial Revolution, where because of interchangeable parts and the division of labor, all of a sudden population exploded and started tripling and doubling within a matter of hundreds of years. You can also look at something like the germ theory of disease that started in the 19th century. Before that, they thought it was pollution that caused all these diseases, but after that, they had a powerful weapon to fight disease. There's a distinct before and a distinct after, and Jesus' death is like that. The cross divides history and leaves the area of sin and death to this side and brings about the era of the spirit and life on the other side. But Paul's key insight here is that this reality is only partially realized right now. We have some of it now that came in with the cross, but the rest of it will not come until Jesus returns. It's something that theologians refer to as the already but not yet. Christ's death and re resurrection has already given us the blessing of salvation, but is not fulfilled. And we live in this in-between time where we're stuck between two different realities. A couple ways to think about it. Like when you are dating somebody, um, you're kind of not sure what the future is. And the next step is you get a ring, you get engaged, and now you think, okay, we're going to get married. And you're in this in-between stage. You're no longer as insecure as when you're dating because you know that this person is committed to you, but you're, no, you're not yet married, at least legally and financially and all that other kind of stuff. You still have to file taxes you know, separately or whatever. The, thing, the example that I think a lot of is I'm a high school teacher, so I started following all these um, Instagram accounts about how to get into um, college. <laughs> uh, and so I'm being targeted for like, uh, do you need help writing your personal essay, all this other kind of stuff. I remember I applied to college. I got an early decision in December. But even though I knew what was going to happen in September, 
I still had to be stuck in this high school for the next six months. And I almost didn't make it out. I uh, almost failed out of uh, AP Biology because I basically stopped showing up to class. <laughs> but uh, thank God I made it. But you're stuck in this in-between time. Yes, you're accepted into college, but you're not in college yet. And this is the same exact picture that we have with Paul. We are already in the Spirit, and the Spirit has unleashed some of the benefits that come with knowing Christ because of his death and resurrection. We experience joy in our hearts. We experience inward renewal. We're able to gather as a community of believers. In some cases, we're able to experience miraculous healing, Christ's resurrection power becoming available to us. That is the future part of it. But we're still stuck to the past part of it where we struggle with sin, people still get sick, and people still die. And Paul's answer to this is Jesus' work happens in two stages. It starts with the cross and the resurrection, but it will not be complete until one day he returns. And there's a lot of things in the world that work like this. When I was um, 18, I was in a, like a punk band or a ska band, so I wanted to dye my hair blue. But as you can see, my hair is black. So at first what I did is I bought blue dye and I put it all over my hair, but it just stayed black. <laughs> Why? Uh, Dyeing your hair, much like the work of Christ, is a two-stage process. First, you've got to bleach it, and then you've got to dye it blue. Uh, but I did not do it professionally. I did it by myself. So it ended up becoming green, and it looked like somebody puked on my head. <laughs> but still, that is how Jesus <laughs> works. <laughs> he comes in one stage. He starts the work, but he finishes it off in a different place. So once that happens, the next question is, okay, so when is he actually going to come back? And 1 Thessalonians 5 handles this question exactly. In verse 1, he mentions times and seasons, and he is talking about this exact question. All right, we cannot wait for Jesus to come back, but when exactly is that going to happen? And he says, nobody knows the exact time or day. It will come like a thief in the night. So um, we have a second child, um, Otis, and his due date was October 22nd. We have a first child, Arlo, and her due date was January 28th. Arlo was two weeks late. So Jen tried everything, acupuncture, all kinds of stuff, and then ended up having to get induced. October 22nd shows up for Otis and no baby. So I'm like, okay, it's going to take another two weeks. So that's a due date for a reason. We know the baby's coming. But I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just like Arlo, it's going to happen in two weeks. So Thursday afternoon after class, I'm not really paying attention to my phone. I'm waiting for Arlo to get out of school. I think I might have drifted off in the car. I check my phone after 45 minutes. I have 18 <laughs> missed calls. I have all these text messages. The water is broken. Where are you? Pick up your phone. Did something happen? I'm going to call Dr. Lee and see if he can get you. And even though I knew it was six days late, I almost uh, missed this dramatic event, which is um, getting Jen to the hospital so Otis could be here on the 28th, which is six days late. Paul says this second coming, nobody knows exactly when it's going to happen. It'll come like, as he mentions in verse 3, like labor pains for a pregnant woman. All of a sudden, it'll come upon you or like a thief in the night. And what Paul is saying is basically there's no use in trying to figure out when this will happen. It will come at an unexpected time. And the fact that this is true hits people in two different ways. He describes two separate groups of people. 
The first group of people he talks about are people who live in darkness. They're called people of the night, people who are living in drunkenness, and people who are asleep. And to be in darkness is to be unable or unwilling to face the reality that sits before you. And as a teacher, it's something you encounter all the time. There's um, the hardest class to teach, which is intermediate Latin, meaning uh, not advanced Latin, meaning these are the Latin students who are not that good at Latin and they hate Latin. And every year they always start the class by saying, why do we have to learn Latin? This is a dead language. I'll never use this again in my life. And it is so hard to motivate this class. And I'll say, on Friday, you will have a quiz. And Friday shows up, they are not prepared. Okay, and then the next year, okay, on Friday, you have a quiz. This is the quiz beforehand. You just have to memorize it. Please just show up on Friday and memorize it and show me that you're at least interested. And undoubtedly, one or two students will fail it. I said, you don't even know, need to know Latin. I could have put XQ happy face in these blanks and you could have put XQ happy face and still done well. But no matter what happens, these guys just cannot motivate themselves to get there. And that's probably my fault because I'm not that great of a teacher. But they are not able to see this deadline is approaching and they are not prepared. It's like if you miss tax day or something like that. We are knowing that these things are going to be happening but for some people, people who live in darkness, people who live in drunkenness, people who are alive at the night, they are not willing to accept that the world is this way, that one day Jesus will return. And it gets very interesting. It's not like my students who are just kind of um, playing on their phones and that's why they forget. What we find in verse 3 is they trust in a slogan. And the slogan is this, there is peace and security. There is peace and security. The city of Thessalonica was a major city in Macedonia, which is the hometown of Alexander the Great and Philip II of Macedon, who spread the empire forward. But by this time in its history, it had come into an intimate relationship with the Roman Empire, and since the Roman Empire had begun, it had inaugurated something called the Pax Romana, which is the Great Roman Peace, which ended up lasting 200 years. And so when Paul is talking about there is peace, there is security, he is talking about people who have put their faith in the government, people who have put their faith in economics, people who have put their faith in the infrastructure around them and saying, the world will not falter and I can rest secured. There's a movie called The Big Short that came out in 2012 or 13, I think, talking about the financial crisis of 2008. And that crisis at its core began and continued because there was an underlying assumption that housing prices will continue to rise and people built their life on that people spent their money on that and that ended up being a false assumption what paul is saying here is people who believe in the slogan there is peace and security and put all their faith in politics put all their faith in economics they are putting their faith on shaky ground for people like that jesus will turn will come like a thief in the night it'll be a surprise it'll be a boo out of nowhere, and they'll be caught off guard. But there are other people, and Paul refers to them as children of the day, and here he's talking about the Thessalonian Christians. You who believe, you who have faith, when Christ comes, even though you don't know the time, it will not be a source of surprise. It will not be a source of destruction. It will not be a source of anxiety, but it will be a source of comfort. He will return to complete the work that he has started. And we see this pattern throughout history. Uh, one of the most prominent places you see it is in the Passover. Uh, we went to Maryland for a couple days, and uh, my mom took us to Lancaster to see um, this, like, Bible play 
uh, about Moses where they have like live animals and fire and things like that. So this is a play about Moses and Arlo basically watched the whole thing like this. She was frightened uh, because it's very violent <laughs> and like the angel of death comes <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. So I was like, oh my God, mom, this is like an hour and a half <laughs> and <laughs> Otis doesn't care. And but um, So this story basically is accurate though. Um, on the night before Egypt leaves, um, God tells everybody the angel of death is coming and if you want to be protected, you have to paint your door in blood. And this represents the blood of Christ and the angel will pass over. And despite this warning, the Egyptians do not listen and their children suffer, whereas the Israelite children are able to go forward. Paul is telling us, for those of you who are children of light, to be sober-minded. This day is coming. Christ will one day return And for those of us who are prepared for it, it won't be a source of anxiety like, oh, I haven't gotten done all the things I want to get done. But we recognize it for what it is. Christ is coming back for his people. So in the meanwhile, what should we do? This is a strange thing. Like when I was Miles' age, I kept thinking like, oh God, I don't want Jesus to come back anytime soon. (laughs) I want to like live on my own. I want to like get a job. I want to spend my money on the stuff I want to spend the money on. I want to like get married. I want to have kids. Now that I'm 40, I'm kind of like, come back anytime, (laughs) Jesus. Like I'm ready. (laughs) Whenever you want to come, like that would be fine with me, right? And so what are we supposed to do? We're kind of waiting for this great event to happen. There's a couple of wrong things that you can do that Christians have done throughout history, which is number one, you try and find the exact date. I remember when I used to come drive up to New York, there was this guy on the radio who happened to be an old CRC pastor, but he left, and he got famous for predicting the day that um, Jesus was supposed to come back. He did it in like 1992. He got it wrong, and he goes, okay, my mistake. I made a math mistake. It'll be on this day. He got it wrong. He kept doing it. He got it wrong, and at the end of this time, he eventually said, nobody will be able to know the exact time. So what are we supposed to do? We're not supposed to spend our time calculating and waiting and trying to time it like you would time the market or time something else. You just have to accept that one day it'll come out of nowhere. But the other thing that we should not do is separate ourselves out from society and say, okay, Jesus is coming back one day. These are children of darkness. We are children of light. Let's leave the children of darkness to be on their own while we get to experience joy. And one thing that you see at the end of the big short is a couple of people were able to recognize that the financial crisis was coming and they shorted the market and ended up profiting extremely well. But the tenor of the movie was extremely sad because, yes, these five people got to end up making money from this, but the rest of the world suffered. And even those who ended up making money, they were not happy about it, but they were in gloom. And that's a similar feeling that I think a lot of us should have about the second coming. Yes, there is hope for us who have faith, but what about everybody else? And this is where Paul tells us exactly what to do. Put on faith, put on love, and put on hope. Put on faith, put on love, and put on hope. What should we do while we wait for Christ to return? Do those three things. So first of all, faith. I was watching um, The Last Dance, and I kind of just hop in and out now. I've seen it like twice, and I kind of watch episodes here and there. And one thing you note about Michael Jordan is he's like a psychotic person, and he hates it when somebody gives him a slight or a wrong, and he even makes up things to get mad about to motivate himself. And one day he's sitting in the locker room and he says something which I think is fascinating. He says, anybody p- can be confident when you're up 15 points, but what happens when you're down 15? Then we find out who you really are. And faith is like that. We can all have faith when life is good, when everything's going our way, when our kids seem to be doing well. 
But what happens when you're down 15 points? Will you continue to have faith? Paul is saying don't give up even though some of the things that we're experiencing are part of this old age. Struggling with sin. Struggling with death. Struggling with a lack of joy. Do not give up your faith when life gets hard. The second, love. Paul notes that these guys had just turned from idolatry to the true faith. They were one generation old, probably only been Christian for a month, uh, if not a little bit longer. And Paul says, imitate what I do. And what was Paul doing? He was going around preaching to people who were living as children of darkness and saying, come and be with us as children of light. This message about Jesus returning one day is not, oh, thank God, I'm going to be safe and forget about everyone else. It is a spur that we have to reach out and love and tell people around us about this faith. We cannot sit by and profit from this great thing that's going to happen and not care at all about the millions of people who are not yet in this place. Paul's life and Paul's message here is not, hey, good job, you're going to be fine, but go out and share this gospel message with the people around you. And most importantly for this message, he says, put on the hope, the helmet of hope, and that will be what guards you. You know, living in New York is um, a great thing, but it's so easy to kind of put your faith and your hope in so many other things around you. You put your faith in your job, you put your faith in your family, you put your faith in your kids and in their future, and you kind of keep on moving forward to the next decision and saying, I think this thing will unlock a little bit more happiness. If I find the right person, if I find the right job, if I get my kid into the right school, then I will feel fulfilled. But history tells us those things will falter. Those things are not as secure as we thought they might be. And Paul says that when you do that, you misplace your hope. It's like a pilot who's flying a plane, trying to figure out where he is, but trying to do it by looking at the clouds. Clouds change. They disappear. They go up. They go down. They change shape. Where are you supposed to look? You're supposed to look at the horizon. You're supposed to look at the end, and the end is what orients you in the present. Don't look at the stuff that's just right next to us, although there's nothing wrong with any of it, but know that your ultimate hope comes from Christ. So as we wrap it up, um, I think it's odd to preach this message um, now. Um, there was um, air quality warnings for the last couple of days. And I don't know if you remember when these Canadian wildfires first started coming through New York. There was this one day in particular where the whole city turned orange and brown. And even though it was unsafe, I put a mask on. I was like, I got to see what the city looks like. And it was so odd. And it felt like, ooh, something ominous is in the air. And we've all gone through a couple of experiences that show the things that most people think are stable are not stable. We just came out of a global pandemic where everything shut down for months and the stuff that we thought would never fail ended up failing. We're living in the time of AI in a world after James Cameron released The Terminator. So now we don't know what's going to happen with all of this stuff going on. We are living in a world where it feels like, oh, the world is changing in a dramatic way. And in that world, it's easy to lose faith and perspective and start to think, oh, I don't know if this coming to church every week is worthwhile. I don't know if going to pray all the time is worthwhile. I don't know if remaining faithful when it seems like nobody else is remaining faithful is worthwhile. What Paul tells us in these verses is verse 11, encourage one another just as you're doing and do so more and more. And the reason is we're not looking at the clouds around us. We're not looking at the things that constantly change. We're looking at this thing, which is one day Jesus will come back for his people. 
It reminds me of this song from Daniel Tiger that um, Arlo likes, which is grown-ups come back. And then when you listen to the song, it's very strange. Like it says, when you drop your kids off at school, don't worry because grown-ups will come back because that's the rule. Like they have to come back or else the police are going to get them. <laughs> the one that I like is um, like date night. Daniel Tiger singing about date night. He's like, don't worry. When your parents go out for date night and a babysitter is there, they will come back. And that's Paul's message as well. You might fall asleep and you don't know where Jesus is at, but in the middle of the night, your mom will come in and kiss you on the head and say, hey, I'm here, okay? So Jesus is coming back. All right, let's pray. Um, Yeah, so some of us might be in a place where things are headed like a little down and we're like, God, you are a God who resurrected your son from the dead. There should be eternal life and resurrection power but I am not experiencing that. There's sickness in my body. There's sickness around me. People I love are passing, and I'm frustrated by it. Some of us might be on an upward trajectory where everything in our life seems to be going well. We're like, God, this is great. I'm so happy with how everything is going. In both cases, Paul gives the same message, which is don't just look at what's going on in the immediate, but fix your eyes on the horizon. One day Christ will come back, and that is where our ultimate hope should be. So let's take a few moments and just reflect on how God is moving in our lives and surrender them to him and say, God, in light of your coming back, help me to live wisely, help me to live soberly. And then after that, we'll uh, sing some songs together. Mm